Please open your Bibles to Isaiah chapter 53 as we'll continue our study in the book of Isaiah and we continue looking at this servant song started at the end of 52 and we'll end with our reading today at the end of 53. We'll be looking at verses 7 through 12 today. Before we do that, let's go to the Lord in prayer and ask for his help with it. Let's pray. Our Lord Jesus, as we come to this portion of your word, we pray that you would help us. This gives us a very clear picture of who you were and what you did and who you are. And so, Lord, help us because many times we want to rewrite those things. We want to make you out to be different than you are or different than you were. And so, Lord, we pray that you would convict us of that sin that you would lead us to the truth, that you would lead us to holiness. It's in your name we pray. Amen. So to introduce our passage today, I want to take us to the New Testament in the book of Acts, where we see our pass, where we see our text used in the New Testament. So turn with me to Acts chapter 8. Acts chapter 8. We see this passage being read. And this is... Very helpful in our own understanding of this passage. So Acts chapter 8, starting at verse 26. Now an angel of the Lord said to Philip, Rise and go toward the south to the road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. This is a desert place. And he rose and went, and there was an Ethiopian, a eunuch, a court official of Candace, queen of the Ethiopians, who was in charge of her treasure. And had come to Jerusalem to worship and was returning, seated in his chariot, and he was reading the prophet Isaiah. And the spirit said to Philip, go over and join his chariot. So Philip ran to him and heard heard him reading Isaiah the prophet and asked, do you understand what you are reading? And he said, how can I unless someone guides me? And he invited Philip to come up and sit with him. Now the passage of the scripture that he was reading was this, like a sheep he was led to the slaughter, like a lamb before its shearer is silent, so he opens not his mouth. In his humiliation, justice was denied him. Who can describe his generation? For his life is taken away from this earth. And the eunuch said to Philip, About whom I ask you, does the prophet say this, about himself or someone else? Then Philip opened his mouth, and beginning with this scripture, he told him the good news about Jesus. We studied this passage some time ago as we preached through the book of Acts. That's been a little while. If you remember, Philip was one of the deacons that was appointed in Acts 6 to assist the elders in their ministry. And so here, Philip is given this great task to go and meet this Ethiopian whom he's never met, to share the gospel with him from our text today in the book of Isaiah. As we come to this, we are given a very clear scriptural interpretation concerning the meaning of our text today. It is the gospel of Jesus Christ. Philip was sent to a specific place to preach the gospel with a specific person, and the gospel came straight from Isaiah 53. Obviously, the gospel can be found throughout every book of the Bible. We believe that wholeheartedly here. But there are a few places where it is written so plainly and so vividly for us than in our text today. So as we come to our text today, we have the task that Philip had. 
we must preach the good news about Jesus Christ. We live in a day and a time where good news is certainly welcome, but our time is not unique in that way at all. Another thing that connects us with the rest of history is our desire to make this story our own story, to ultimately make ourselves to be the hero. And as Jesus maybe is just a mere means by which we too can attain greatness. All throughout this book, the prophet Isaiah has made Jesus the superstar, and we come here today to do the same. So as we consider this text, we'll look at two main ideas, the Savior's voluntary defeat and then the Savior's triumphant victory. So with that, please stand with me as we read from God's Word, Isaiah chapter 53, starting at verse 7. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off from the land of the living, or from the land of the living, stricken for the transgressions of my people? And they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death, although he had done no violence, and there was no deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offering, he shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteousness, and he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong. Because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors, yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. Amen. This is God's word. You may be seated. So the last few weeks we've been in this servant song of Isaiah, which began at the last couple of verses of 52 and now ends here at the end of 53. There's a common theme here about the life and death of Jesus Christ, and we cannot overstate the importance of this passage. It's quoted no less than seven times directly in the New Testament and indirectly many other times. The New Testament writers, of course, thought this was very important in our understanding of who Jesus was. And so their quotation of it, not, it just strengthens our own understanding of God's word and our understanding that God's word is self-authenticating. It tells the truth about itself. So God said that it would come to pass and it did. Those things did come to pass. Other writers confirmed that that happened. And therefore, we have this truth here before us today. As we pair this passage with the New Testament, it should only increase our faith, show us more and more who Jesus is. He's our Savior. He's our Redeemer. He's the Redeemer of God's people from all time and all eternity. And we need this reminder, brothers and sisters in Christ, 
Because like Israel, we look to just about anything else to be that for us. To quote Isaiah, we are a people of unclean lips. You remember him quoting that in chapter 6. We need the cleansing that only Christ can give us. And that brings me to the first point, the Savior's voluntary defeat. Look with me again at verse 7. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that is before its shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. Think back to Jesus' time before Pilate, when he was questioned before the Roman governor. Jesus gave short responses to just to the questions that he, that he was asked. He affirmed that he was indeed king of the Jews when they asked that question. But when it came time to defend himself from all the other accusations that were made against him, all of the silly charges that were made against him, he kept silent. And so consider that for just a moment. I think we easily gloss over this. This is something that we skip over because it's just, you know, we've heard it so many times. It's one thing to be silent before your accusers. Criminals do this all the time. And the reason that criminals do this is because they don't want to further incriminate themselves. They will stay silent so that they don't make themselves out worse to be than they actually are. Yet Jesus was completely innocent. He had proved that over and over. And he had also proved over and over that he had the intellectual prowess to outmatch these folks as he did it all throughout the Gospels. Anytime he came up against them and they questioned him, he was the one that made them to be silent. Yet now, he remains silent. When I read it this week, it immediately brought me and made me think of the the opening days of creation. I so easily go back to Genesis so many times. When God the Father, the Son, and the Spirit spoke into nothing, and they said, let there be light. And light was. And light became. Over the next six days, he created all things by the word of his power. He spoke things into existence that were before not there. From nothing came everything because he spoke them into existence. He breathed the very breath of life into the creatures on this earth. And here in a court surrounded by his creations, he keeps silent. Why? Because his defeat was voluntary. Were he to speak, he could easily defeat his foes. He could easily speak them into non-existence. Yet he remained silent. Look with me again at verse 8. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. And as for his generation who considered that he was cut off for the land of the living, stricken for the transgressions of my people. So this question here, it's oddly worded. You'll see lots of different translations out there, but the general idea here is considering or is concerning the injustice that Jesus faced, not only in his trial, but also from those in his day who did not consider his death to be of any kind of importance. You know, by oppression and judgment he was taken away and for his and as for his generation who considered 
that he was cut off from the land of the living? Who even gave it a second thought that he was going to die? In general, the idea here, I mean, again, he's just this common criminal, right? That we're going to see that in the next verse, that he was hung up besides two other criminals. Who even thought that it meant anything at all? Who gave a second thought? He was just another upstart Messiah figure that Rome had to put down yet again. But to those who knew him, he was something much more than that. He was something much greater than that. They knew that he had come to save his people from his from their sins. Isaiah knew that all these years ago. Stricken for the transgression of my people. That's what we read in verse 8. Again, the theme of this of substitutionary atonement. The people of God, not only in Isaiah's day, but in every day since, need a savior. And he couldn't say and they couldn't save themselves. The blood of goats and bulls wouldn't save them either. They needed someone to come and do it. It's just like we read from the Heidelberg Catechism this morning. They needed someone that they couldn't even stand in their own place, or one of them couldn't volunteer. Like the Catechism says, one who is true and a righteous human. There's only one. Yet more powerful than all creatures. That is, one who is also true God. And so as we read that, Jesus was not just a mere man, but he was also fully God. And that's what makes this passage so difficult. Is Even as we look at verse 9, look at verse 9 with me. And they made his grave with the wicked. And with a rich man in his death, although he had done no violence, and there was no deceit in his mouth. If you remember the story, he was hung up next to two criminals, and those two criminals mocked him as he was dying. He was exchanged for one called Barabbas, who was a known terrorist, who was a murderer in Judea. And the people of Judea wanted him instead of Jesus. When he was hung on the middle in the cross, he was in the middle of these two common thieves, and they put above his body King of the Jews to show his crime. We are typically shocked when we hear a story. I read a story recently about an innocent man who was serving a long prison term, and he was innocent. It was 46 years that he had to serve in prison, and it was later found that he was innocent and it was shocking to me and I thought how can they possibly have any retribution for that what an incredible injustice I thought he was you know he he should be given something and this and they probably will have to pay him something but then I thought they can never really repay all the years that he lost I mean 46 years is a long time to be imprisoned for something that you didn't do so when we come to this text When we read about the worst injustice of all time, so many times we just idly kind of glance past it because we've read it so many times. Or worse than that, we see it as a means for for ourselves to acquire some greatness. And you hear this kind of thing all the time in the church, unfortunately. You hear things like, well, allow, allow Jesus to unlock your true potential. I don't even know what that means, but I hear it. Give your life to Jesus and discover true happiness. While it may be true that true happiness is found in Christ, 
He did not die so that you can be truly happy. He died because I'm a thief, because I'm Barabbas, I'm the murderer. He was innocent. The text says, no violence, no deceit in his mouth. Yet I can't even open my mouth more than a few times before lies start to pour out. Understand, church, there's a reason Jesus had to die. It's because you and I couldn't do anything for ourselves. In fact, were it not for him, we'd still be considered dead. We'd still be considered sons and daughters of disobedience, children of wrath. Yet the Lord laid on him the iniquity of us all. He didn't die so that we could somehow be better in this life. He died to save us from our sins. And that brings me to the second point, the Savior triumphant. Look with me again at verse 10. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. I mean, consider all that we've just read. This horrible injustice that occurred, the Lamb of God being sent to be slaughtered for the sins of his people. Their sins actually laid upon Jesus. Jesus took their sin. Like like Paul tells us, he, Jesus, became sin. So what is the only right response then? What is the only right response from a just God seeing the sins of the people now upon his sinless son? What is the only right response? He has to crush them. The NAS uh, version of the Bible has a better rendering of this than the ESV. It reads, but, it, but the Lord was pleased to crush him. It gives us a little more feeling of what's going on here. Consider this a moment. It pleases the Father to carry out his own will. Absolutely it does. And here, it pleased him to carry out justice upon his own son. As I read that this week, it made me think of the story that you're all familiar with in Genesis 22. We won't turn there, but I encourage you to read through it to kind of draw back to this text with Abraham and Isaac on Mount Moriah. You probably remember this. Abraham had to wait to have children. He finally had one and Isaac and the Lord came to Abraham and he said, I want you to take your son Isaac up on that mountain and I want you to sacrifice him. And Abraham went willingly. It pleased him to do the will of the Lord. He was ready to do it. But at the last moment, you remember, at the last moment, the Lord provided a sacrifice. There was a ram in the thicket, and he didn't have to kill his only son. It pointed forward to this moment that we have before us now. But God the Father didn't have another substitute. There was... No other ram in the thicket. The son was the ram in the thicket. The son is the substitute. So it pleased the father to carry out justice once and for all for the sins of the people of God. It pleased him to crush his only son. And we might expect now 
to read the end of the story, right? Okay, the servant is gone. And now we, we have atonement for the people. We know that good stories don't end this way, though. We've been living long enough to know that the, the good stories don't end this way. And the only reason they don't end this way is because of the good story that's being told here. The reason that pagans tell good stories today is because this one was first told. That an innocent would give his life and yet find life again. Look at the end of verse 10. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. This is the one who was just crushed. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. How is he going to prolong his days if he's just been crushed by God? It's because he's been risen from the grave. A goat or a bull could not do this. A mere man could not do this. How could a mere man bear the full wrath of God and then come back to receive glory and honor from it? It's not possible. It's what we read from the catechism. It's what you see throughout Scripture. We have martyrs for things all the time, not just for Christian things, people who die while defending something they love and they're remembered even for a time. And there might even be a statue put up next to their grave and it may say, here lies a good person because of this good thing that they did one time. But others have to go and visit that grave in order to kind of give honor to them to see that statue. But inside that grave is a rotting corpse. But if you go to the grave of Jesus Christ today, there's nothing. It's empty. This was the only way, not only to make atonement for our sins, but to give us victory over the grave. So not only was the taint of, of sin covered, but also this idea of you shall surely die was completely reversed. And in Christ, we can live. We see that spelled out in the next two verses in 11 and 12. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied by his knowledge. Shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous? And he shall bear the iniquity, bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. As a result of his great anguish, he was able to accomplish the redemption of his people. Remember in back at the end of chapter 52, when it said, we read that my servant shall act wisely. Well, here we see that idea repeated. By his knowledge shall the righteous one make, the, make many to be accounted righteous. The thing that he set out to do to make righteous all the sinful people of God was complete and he had absolute satisfaction in his task. When Jesus was on the cross, what did he say? His last words, it is finished. He was announcing to the world throughout time and eternity that he had accomplished the task that he had set out to do. And brothers and sisters, understand this. He didn't simply make it available. And can you imagine a message where Jesus died to simply just make that available for anybody who might want it? Hey, I I did this thing. You know, I died. I was the ultimate sacrifice, the only one and only begotten son of God. I died so that you this thing's available if you want it. You who are dead in your trespasses, sons and daughters of disobedience. 
you might want this thing. That's not at all what he did. He didn't just make it possible. Now it's not, it's not up to us to unlock the promises of God. There's nothing in me that would ever want to do that. He did it. He finished it. He made many to be accounted as righteousness. He actually bore their iniquities. He didn't wait to see if they wanted their iniquities to be born. He actually did it for them. Because of this, because of the victory he won, he shares the spoils with the Father. We share the spoils with him. And notice the tense change at the end of verse 12. Yet he bore the sins of many and makes intercession for transgressors. He's currently doing that. This is a major theme in the New Testament, considering the work of Christ right now on the behalf of his church. You hear me talk about this all the time. This current intercession of God right now at the right hand of the Father. John sums this up in a great way. Turn with me to the book of 1 John, chapter 2. As we see this idea of the atonement and his intercession tied up together in one. First John chapter 2, I'll read the first six verses and again just kind of see this whole theme coming together here. My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate. We have an intercessor with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins. He is the atonement. He is the, the payment for our sins. And not only for ours, but for the sins of the whole world. And by this, we know that we have come to know him. And if we keep his commandments, whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments is a liar. And the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word in him, truly the love of God is perfected. By this way, we may know that we are in him. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. If you remember last week, we read from First Peter chapter 2. And Peter was also quoting from this idea of from Isaiah 53. And what was his conclusions when he read this as well? His conclusions and his direction and command to the church was, die to sin, live to righteousness. It's almost as if Peter and John had the same teacher. John's conclusion is the same. Why would you why would you hear this? Why would you understand this? My little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. So that you may not sin. But also notice he's the payment for our sin, he's the propitiation for our sin is what he says there. But also notice if we do sin, what does he say that we have? We have an advocate We have an intercessor. We have someone who even right now is making intercession, who is advocating our position before the Father. He came to die in our place. He continues to pray for us even today, brothers and sisters in Christ, every day. He is the payment for our sins because we, and even, and because we still sin, because we're always doing this, even while we are still in sin, He is right now interceding on our behalf. This isn't a story that we would write at all. 
We want a happy-go-lucky Jesus who accepts us just as we are. It's a common thing in the church, you know, well, Jesus accepts you just as you are. But that's not true. That's not what we get. We have a Savior that was stricken, smitten by God and afflicted because of me, because of the way that I am. We have a Savior, man of sorrows is his name, who accepts me and you despite the way we are. Because of the way we are, because of the way we were without him, he had to give his life. He had to be cursed, hung on a tree between two common thieves. It pleased the Father to crush him so that we might be counted as righteous in his sight. Brothers and sisters, we're... In church, in in the church, repent, turn again to Jesus Christ, cast off your idols, those ways that you look at him that you shouldn't, the ways that you sin, even though you ought not to. He suffered and died. He is alive today. He intercedes right now. And so what should the response be from us? We should rest in him. We should go on without sinning. We should trust him. We should believe in him. He has brought us peace on the cross. It's not something we have to go and find. It's something that we have. And for unbelievers, if you're here and you're an unbeliever, this Jesus that we've been talking about, he is the one that you should call Savior. In fact, to call anything else or anyone else Savior is to commit the sin that will earn you eternal punishment. Jesus said this. He said that whoever believes in the Son has eternal life, but whoever does not believe, the wrath of God remains on him. Believe in Jesus today. Call upon his name and be saved. In conclusion, as we close up this chapter of Isaiah, remember the picture that we saw of Jesus here. Not only did he suffer and die for us, but he is victorious. And in him we share in that victory. Live as if you were joint heirs of Jesus Christ. Proclaim that message to a lost world. Let's go to him in prayer. Our Lord Jesus, as we come to you, we pray that you would help us. This is a simple message. It's one that we so easily mix up. It's one that we so easily get wrong. It's one that we easily want to make ourselves the hero of. So, Lord, we pray that you would help us, not only for our own good, that you would continue to grow us in your grace and mercy, that we might glorify your name, but also, Lord, for a lost world who needs this message. There is no other message of hope. There is no other Savior but you. Lord, help us to be faithful to that message. We pray this in your name. Amen.